0: a lot of history. <clears throat> There's a lot of stories. You know, it's um. I recently told at, at our company Christmas party. You know, I was asked to give like a little mini speech at the end, um, because I'm probably like you know, the most senior person there. You know, at this point mm-hmm. in my life, and you know, I said to a lot of the the kids, you know, in their twenties, I said, you know. When I was at Blue Grape, we were so busy, everything was so crazy all the time. I never took a step back and and to really like enjoy what we were going through and how special it all was. And I kind of regret that now. I wish I would have been able to like take that step back uh, because it was a very unique experience with, you know a pretty unique group of people. And it really was a family. And, and you know, as, you know, yes, did they, they, certain people to label, treat us like, you know, we, we were Cinderella scrubbing uh, the floors, you know. Yeah, I, I absolutely. But there were a lot of others and, you know, people like Monty Connor, who, you know, and I've told Monty this many times that I really owe most of my career to him as well as Holly and Scott because he was always inclusive. So whenever he was even looking to sign a band, he would bring me with him to the dinners and to the shows. So I had really early access. I remember you know, Roadrunner was trying to sign the Deftones and ultimately they didn't end up signing them. But I remember going out with Monty and the Deftones really early on and, you know, developing a relationship with them um, that if I was at, you know, just an independent merchandising company, unaffiliated with the label, that would have been impossible. Mm. You know, I wouldn't even have known who they were until they had signed a record deal, already had a record out and, and were having some success. I mean, we had very, very early access to all the bands. You know, sometimes that, that you know, and that, that was great a lot of the time, but sometimes that would be a little bit problematic because we would end up having to merchandise them probably earlier than they would have traditionally been merchandised. Right. And you had to be careful on that. I mean, uh, uh you know, I think Doggy Dog, was a great example of that because, you know, they were signed really early and look, ultimately they ended up hitting, hitting it huge in Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, really huge, but but back in the States, they, never they did had it in the States, though, right? Was yeah. that, Ken? They never, they
1: never did that in the States, though. Did they, no. In my understanding, I mean, you know, when dog eat dog came to Europe. I mean they were like, you know, like huge. Huge. They, you know, like whatever that song was, the the you know, all Boro kings, you know, uh like, you know, massive. And yeah. The people were saying that, oh yeah, but they they play to 50 people in New York
0: and stuff like this. And you're going right. They were still playing, you know, CBGBs <laughs> in New York, but they were like, you know, headlining the dynamo festival. Exactly. And so it, it created a really challenging situation because so I remember Mandy, Mandy Brown, who worked for us in, in Europe, she's like, they're our biggest band. And I'm like, you're fucking kidding. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, because they weren't for us in the States. So, you know, it, it created a challenge because, you know, they were treated like the biggest band that they were in Europe and then they wanted that same type of yeah, treatment. treatment back you know in the US but you know financially it just didn't make yeah. any sense they yeah. couldn't sell the level of merchandise but how do you tell how do you tell them that you know it's uh not not easily and john it, God it, God. It, <laughs> yeah it's uh and i like john john was a really good guy and john had had was way ahead of of his time with a lot of his merchandising ideas, doing a sneaker line, doing yeah. a shoe line, yeah. um, but it just wasn't really, it didn't make sense for us at that point in their career, but in Europe it did. Mm. Yeah, um, You know, so, you know, there, there were certain, there were benefits, but there were also certain, you know, drawbacks. To being so early in the relationship. Problem, yeah, as you say, you know, so many of these bands
1: that, you know, if it's, if you take on a bat, if it's too small, then, you know, trying to do everything from, for, for, for them, for merch, it just doesn't work. It becomes a disaster. And, yeah, and could, could fall out over it. Because basically, I, what you said earlier on is like some of them, they just need gas money, you know I mean? Right you know, they're trying to eat off it, you know what I mean, so they just, they need some t-shirts, and like, they need to live off it, but we'd be like, oh yeah, so, you know, I mean, let me, we, we give you these, and then we do the royalty deal, and uh, you know, and you know, where, where are the figures, and then, uh, I don't know, my girlfriend sold one, and you know, somebody <laughs> yeah. gave me a drink, and so I gave them a t-shirt, and that was it, you know. But quite early on, I sometimes felt that yeah, we were we were trying to uh, make make a business for some of these bands. That you know, it was like let's... it was too much too soon for, yeah, yeah. for some. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely.
2: Was that the experience? Yeah. With... Sorry, go on, Felix.
0: You remember Cynic?
2: I remember the name, but I don't, I don't know.
1: If yeah,
0: I... so Cynic was like a young metal band. And they were managed by Debbie Bono, who managed oh, Obituary. Yeah. yeah. And Obituary, you know, after Sempel Obituary were probably, yeah. you know, er, in the early days, our number two band.
1: Yeah.
0: And they did, a, you know, a lot of merchandise. So now, same manager, and it's got this new band, and basically wants, you know, that band to be treated the same way that Obituary is treated. But it, it just didn't make sense. They, they were just starting out. And they just needed a few and again, they just needed a few shirts supplied to them so they could have some gas food money. Yeah. But you know, the manager insisted that we send a road person out and vend them. Mm. And then they got their royalty statement and you know, they lost money on the tour. It's like, how could we lose money? Well, it's the cost of sending somebody out on the road, there's all your profit gone. Yeah. So yeah. You know, so you're sort of walking a tightrope sometimes. So
2: thinking about the same sort of timeline in terms of the dog eat dog anecdote, was that experience of maybe incubating a band a little bit too early? How was that with machine ed? Because I think Burn My Eyes came out and that blew up in Europe on the Slayer tour. But in well, the States it was it was it was still quite successful. But it wasn't like it was still 150 people rooms, right? It wasn't like arenas.
0: Well, machine head was a completely different entity because I remember, uh, I think it was concrete foundations, maybe 93 or 94, where I first met them with Monty. Again, Monty brought me in to the negotiations as they were getting signed as the representative of the merchandising company and Joseph Houston, their manager, who I consider a friend and, uh, brilliant guy paleontologist let me hold a hundred uh, million year old rock once from his personal collection he understood that the you know what the merchandising value of the band was and he was one of the first ones who basically said look you know we've got other offers from other merchandising companies and they're offering us advances and if you want our merchandise, you need to pay us a separate advance that's not crossed with the record and publishing advance. And and they were the first ones. And ultimately, you know, Case agreed, mm. um, and, and they got their own separate merchandising advance.
2: When, when you say when you say it's crossed with. Is that to suggest that a normal standard deal with with Roadrunner, with Roadster Publishing, and the rest of it um, would all of those be linked in terms of a royalty line? Or, it all it,
0: it depended on the deal. I mean, early, very early on, a lot of the deals were crossed, and meaning that you, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pick just a, a round number just yeah, yeah. to make this simple, make it easier let's say you you give a band a hundred thousand dollars and it's for the records it's for your publishing and it's for your merchandising that means that you can earn back that hundred thousand dollars from any of those income streams right it's all cost ultimately you know it it was what people now call a 360 deal you know except that case was doing it back in the early 90s i mean he was way way ahead of his time doing this and people back then said oh you're crazy you can't do that cross the the word crossing advances was a dirty dirty word back then um and eventually all the labels ended up doing it Mm -hmm. um but ultimately the advances became uncrossed and i can't speak for the record and publishing advances They may have stayed crossed. I I don't know because I didn't really get involved in the publishing world. Um, But but I can tell you that the merchandising advances after Machine Head all became standalone advances that solely could be recouped just from merchandising income. And and Machine Head were really you know at the forefront of of leading that for other bands. Um, But there was always sort of this. Feeling with Machine Head, that they were going to sort of be this merchandising machine. That their their logo was fantastic. That Diamond mh logo, you could just see that you could put that on anything. Uh, you know, it was the whole Oakland thing. You know, it was always Oakland versus Brooklyn, yeah. you know, Machine Head versus Biohazard. Um, <laughs> and, and having grown up in Brooklyn, I can tell you, Oakland is very much like that. So. You know, we gladly gave them the advance. And, you know, they, they grew very, very quickly.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: I remember, you know, I mean, I, I still think I've got a pretty good relationship with Rob. I haven't seen him in a while. I ran into him in San Francisco a few years ago. Um, you know, I think he has some bitter memories about the whole Roadrunner uh, Blue Grape experience. But um, at at the end of the day, I mean, we always tried to do right by them. And, you know, they they sold really well. Yeah, Um, They, they, you know, they really were like a a merchandising machine.
2: How did that, did that still, there's another thing I want to ask here, just because something you said that was really intriguing to me. But how was Machine Head's, Compared, let's compare Machine Head '94 that era to Machine Head '2007 to '2010. That's a different beast, isn't it? Because Monty yeah. regards that as Machine Head shot lightning twice, which is impossible.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's, it's look, it, it, it's just you know it's apples and oranges. I think at, at, at that point, right? You know that era '94, '95, '96 for Machine Head. You know that that was really special time for them
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know they they really connected w- with their fan base at that point um they i mean they were a great great live band yeah i i found some photos i guess i was standing on the side of the stage and i was just taking photos of them as they were performing on just like a cheap disposable camera mm-hmm. And and I found those photos recently, and you know, you, you almost feel like the energy coming off the the, the page of those photos. They they had, they had it. They 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 were really great. You know? Yeah, yeah.
2: The one thing you mentioned there, which wouldn't resonate with myself, a Kenny being from the other side of the Atlantic. But you mentioned Oakland versus Brooklyn. Is that is that you recounting that from a vocational business perspective, or is that is that a cultural thing? Was there an Oakland versus Brooklyn? Mentality. I know there's a rap thing, isn't there? There's a rap thing around that time. Yeah, East versus West. I don't
0: think that there really was a, a cultural thing. You know, it wasn't like like in, in, in the rap community, like New York versus LA.
1: Mm.
0: It was just um, you know, I, I think if, if you look at a band like Biohazard, how they treat and and I and I just saw um you know several of them very recently. At the Rainbow again at, at a wake for the, their old manager Scott Koenig, who yep. managed wow. by, beer factory. Yeah. Unfortunately, Scott um, had been ill and passed away. And, and uh, three of the Biohazard guys, they all came out oh, and, and it was, and it was great. Just you know, spending some time and reconnecting with them. Yeah. And you know, we all grew up together in Brooklyn, and it was sort of, you know, a certain mentality. And there's a certain edge to it that Machine had had that edge yeah. and Oakland had that edge. I don't think there was ever a competition between the two cities because I don't think that there was uh, enough bands coming out of either in in the metal field, mm. uh, you know, to develop one the way the rap people did. Um
2: I was open to putting the hooks in because I'm always trying to find like, because I bet if in, in, a, in a parallel universe where there was a really strong East versus West and Machine Head versus Biohazard sort of like uh cultural sort of competition, Case would have fucking loved that. And he would have played that. And I think that speaks yeah. to how up- Roadrunner yeah, operates.
0: No, yeah, that didn't really exist. I mean, the, the sure. funny thing for me was, <laughs> I remember when we first signed Fear Factory and they came, they were, they did a winter tour in on the East Coast, and they are wearing shorts, <laughs> long board shorts.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and yeah. I remember going to Dino. It was like, you know, I'm bundled up in like a freaking down jacket. It's like, you know, 25 degrees and snow, and I'm freezing. And I'm like, how are you not freezing? He's like, from L.A., we wear shorts. <laughs> <laughs> And what's funny, you know, I've been living out here now almost eight years and, you know, it's still sort of like that. You know, I see people going around what I think it's cold, which is like, you know, 45 degrees here in L.A. People are wearing the surface. They're all wearing shorts. Mm -hmm. So there was sort of that East West Coast metal, a little bit of a cultural thing, but, but never, never, ever to anywhere the extent in the rap community.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It was always more of a brother, you know, there was always more of a metal brotherhood. I mean, there really was. I mean, Definitely, uh, you know, that, 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 and that was the one thing that was nice is that, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, they all played together at various times. And um, you saw that like at, at the Roadrunner anniversary concerts, you know, that they did in New York is that yeah. Yeah. You know, it really was a family.
1: You Know with dynamo, like the meeting of all these bands, you know, back yeah, back then it was the 90s. Could you imagine that in a like a, a sort of rap, sort of like 90s or something like that? You know, I mean, oh, you know, the 90s, Netflix, I mean, everybody was friends, you know, what I mean, I mean look, it was like a very, very friendly backstage, you No, know, these, bands, yeah, I
0: miss the dynamo festival. I mean, there were certain years in the mid 90s where the dynamo had. It was like a roadrunner
1: festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like 94 or 95 was like yeah, like, like absolutely insane. You know, I mean, it was like, wow, these bands, you know, everybody was, you know, Sepultura were huge, Typo, you know, I mean, there was, you know, and it, but it was also very friendly. Mm. Oh, like, yeah. The bands wouldn't be at each other's throats. So it wouldn't be this Brooklyn or Oakland thing or whatever. You know I mean? It was just all like, let's all have a beer. You know, like, but yeah. Everybody's just like,
0: let's get fucked up. You
2: know.
0: I I think it was Dynamo ninety five or ninety six. Right. the big Ninety five.
2: Ninety five is, is the one.
0: Yeah, and I remember, you know, just because I'm spoiled and privileged, I always got to watch the shows from the side of the stage.
2: Oh, so were you at ninety yeah. five? I I was. All right. Sweet. Okay. I have no questions.
0: Must have been there too. And I'm standing at the side of the stage for that performance. And back then I used to have like a little anvil road, uh, you know, briefcase that I would carry all my important papers in, (laughs) which to this this day, I can't tell you what I actually had in there. (laughs) Probably a a flashlight and some crackers. (laughs) But anyway, I, I come down the ramp off the stage and the first place and I see is Case. And Case actually was in some ways kind of shy. Like he didn't like to go up on the side he of the stage. Where he would leave that to all his staff. And he's like, um, and he said to me kind of sarcastically, How is your performance? <laughs> you know? Meaning because he thought the fact that I was up on the stage, you know, where the band, you know, not mm. that far from the band, and, and and that was Case. You know, they, I always remembered that. It was, it was kind of amusing. He preferred to be in the background at these festivals. Yeah.
2: Mm. Yeah. As we move into what we're going to regard as the Slipknot Nickelback era, there's three people I want to bring some sort of attention to, two of which you'll be familiar with, Felix, but one you'll both be because you've just alluded to it. Um, Holly Lane, then. Obviously, that's going to be a knowledge gap because she passed away last year. But what are your memories of her? And we can be completely open on that because I understand I understand that she was slash became like a stalwart of the industry. And obviously, the, her part of this story is with Steve Ricardo because she opened the office in Lafayette. So, um, so I, I met Holly in
0: 1986. So I had been in early... In January of 86, uh, I was playing bass with this guy, Neon Leon, who had had this, like, minor hit in New York called Rock and Roll is Alive in New York City. Cool. And Leon was, like, the first black punk rocker. He was at the Chelsea Hotel with Sid Vicious. He was, like, really part of the whole Max's Kansas City scene. And the drummer was this guy named Glenn Hamilton. And Glenn had this friend who was best friends with Holly this woman named Meryl Horwick. And through Meryl, I was introduced to Holly. And Holly kind of like took me under her wing. And this was the King Diamond era. And Abigail had just come out. And we went to a lot of shows, seeing King. We would ride, Roadrunner hadn't actually um, paid for a tour bus yet. So King was, and his band, Mickey D went on to play drums with Motorhead. They were touring in a Winnebago motorhome, <laughs> and I remember me, Holly, and the band and crew were all in this motorhome riding down to you know New Jersey to uh, whatever the show was. And Holly introduced me to everybody. I mean, she was really like the first person who you know I, I would say you know really mentored me in the industry. Um, and, and and was usually helpful. And then and then she left and she went on to Mechanic Records. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately she came back when uh Case had done a deal with uh was it Next Plateau, uh Eddie O'Laughlin, who had Next done uh, a- ring a bell. Salt and pepper. He had done a, a deal, you know, because case was really expanding in the late 90s. Yeah. Um and, and had become partners in this, this sort of, not really a hip hop label, but it's sort of like pseudo hip hop.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and he brought Holly back to work with that label. And so I worked with her, you know, briefly again. And, you know, I mean, you know, she was great. I mean, a little crazy, but, you know, we all were back then. You have to be. Uh, but, you know, she, Steve Ricardo, this woman, Regina Joskow, yep. and they had an intern named John Bello were the origins of Roadrunner. They were the first U.S. origins of Roadrunner in the U.S. And then I remember going there and they're like, oh, we hired a general manager, this guy, Mm. Doug Keogh. And I was still trying to get signed to the label at the time. Mm. So I had brought them like some new demos and I had to meet this guy, Doug Keogh, this new guy. And it was a two-room office. And he was in his own room, and the rest of them were all in the other room. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, that doesn't seem very fair. And I think he had come from, I don't remember exactly, I think like celluloid records, perhaps. But
2: it was a jazz label, right?
0: He'd come from, yeah, I think it was at the time. But um, I didn't really think much, you know, to be perfectly honest, sorry, Doug, but... I didn't really think much of him at that first meeting. <laughs> seemed like a bit of an ass. Um, but, but you know, he ended up actually being a huge help to me uh, very early on and, and was a big, uh, you know, champion for me when I, when I first started. So I, I, I owe him that. But in those early days, I mean, uh, you know, King was the biggest thing they had. I remember when King sold the first – he went over 100,000 records. And that was the first time that Roadrunner had a, a record that sold over 100,000. And then they got him out of the Winnebago and onto a proper tour bus. Awesome. And that was like their first tour bus. <laughs> and that, that, was, that was a big thing. <clears throat> Did you have any dealings with Ian Flint? Of course. What are your memories of him? Ian Skin Flint, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Ian. So, um, <laughs> so, Ian uh, Ian did my taxes one year. Um, Ian originally was an outside accountant for Roadrunner. Yeah. And Ian also was a huge help when I started. We put in this inventory system at his urging called ACPAC. And both Ian and Sean McGoldrick, who worked for him, um, they really trained me in this system and it was all about, you know, having to track inventory, which, you know, as Ken alluded to earlier, you know, it is like super important for our business because that gets away. So I worked really closely with Ian and very early on in, in, in the Blue Grape days. And it's funny, I was thinking about this story the other day. Um, we we got in a little, I, I got it a little over my head. I started... Um, Ordering all, I realized like very early on that like ordering blanks, you know, fruit of the loom, Haynes out of the market wasn't the way to go because, A, they were too expensive. And we were basically selling Haynes and fruit of the loom. And it'd be better, you know, I looked at what Brockham did and I found out, you know, Brockham, who I idolized, that they used a mill called Cressona in Pennsylvania that made their blanks and put their own labels in. I was like, well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to make our own blanks, we're going to put our labels in but back then the mills had very specific programs you couldn't just order black t-shirts you had to order black white and ash t-shirts every month in certain allotments and as you know we didn't really use a whole lot of ash or white t-shirts
1: <laughs> and i used to
0: like try and beg these bands i remember i got obituary i think it was world demise like on a white and, and an ash shirt just because I had all this inventory. It's like, what am I gonna do with it? And you know, I was still new to the business and I didn't realize like how quickly my inventory of non-black was building up because each month I was getting these shipments. And all of a sudden I owed Cressona like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. We didn't have it. And I and I went to Ian and I was like, it was my tail between my legs. I was very embarrassed. I was like, in. I, I don't know what to do. You know, what are we gonna do? And he said, we're gonna go over to Amsterdam. We're gonna meet with Case and, and we're gonna get better funding because Blue Grape was funded with a very low initial investment. I I, I don't remember what the exact amount was. Um, You know, I, I wanna say like 20,000 euros or something. Something like ridiculously low. Mm. And the one thing that I've learned in business, you know, since those days is that, especially with a startup business the way we were, is that early on businesses require funding. And, you know, and I got myself in, in this in a bit of this hole. And Case had brought in an ex-old partner of his who also is named Case. And you were asking earlier. Who the the other component was, and I, I honestly I don't remember the other case's surname. I know who it Mark, is. Do you? Yeah, no. do, yeah. Do you remember it?
2: It's. Uh, I don't remember his name, but I've got it somewhere on this encrypted hard drive. There's a bunch of papers about the people he used to work with in the seventies, and I bet yeah. he was so certainly X certainly.
0: Polygram. Ian and Marcus Turner would know for sure. Yeah. And so instead of us, and I, I remember leaving the hotel in Amsterdam. And I was very nervous. I was like, you know, it was like, I was embarrassed. You know, it was like that I put the company in this position so early on. And I thought we were going to meet with case Wessels, but Ian and I met with the other case. And it was a fantastic meeting. He looked at all the numbers. He said, look, you're doing really well, but you're underfunded. And Ian was a great champion for us and for me. and. We ended up getting, I don't know, an additional 200,000 euro funding, whatever the number was, but we got refunded. We were able to clean up the entire situation. Ironically enough, and and, and I, I say, the Crescenta mill burnt down, getting <laughs> us out of our contract. <laughs> and, and I found a different uh-huh. mill in California where I could order just black t-shirts yeah. in lower quantities at actually a cheaper price than I was getting from Persona, So it actually, well, you know. Line, I'm sorry the mill burnt down. Yes. It actually burnt out. Where we're but, you that
1: um, weekend, Felix? What's that? Where were you that weekend at burnt down?
0: <laughs> I have an alibi. <laughs> <What's that? laughs> there were no cigars left. At- no cigars. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So, but um, but I worked very, but but from that point on, I worked very, very closely with Ian, um, all all the way till the end when we sold the company, and so I knew Ian quite well, and uh, I thought we we had had a a really good working relationship.
2: He wasn't even the second name. It's just we were talking about the those that first lineup of the Lafayette office, and he was there. Like. I'm always trying to find people who were there and we mentioned Steve Ricardo, Holly Lane. Obviously I spoke to Steve, um, at length. Um, but Ian was there just sort of as an outsider at that time.
0: Um, he was an outsider who became an insider.
2: Correct. Yeah. So then I
0: remember all of a sudden he grew his I remember going over to Amsterdam to see him when he was working in that office and all of a sudden he had a ponytail and he was a guy, you know, he, he was, He's, he's a, you know, registered accountant, um, you know, who was, you know, initially fairly conservative dressed. And, yeah. and there he was working for the label. He had the ponytail. And I'm like, well, he, you you've really, you know, adopted the Roadrunner culture.
2: <laughs> Is it the, the second name, Jules Kurtz?
0: Jules Kurtz, I know incredibly well. Jules Kurtz, um, he was my lawyer, uh, uh, you know, he was Blue Grapes lawyer for Blue Grapes, you know, entire run. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, he was Case's lawyer and um, Jules was one of the most interesting people you, you could ever meet. He had, um, I'm sure you've seen all the old pictures of Jules, you know, from back in the day. He knew everybody. He knew every lawyer. He did all our contracts for us. And, uh, you know, I, I learned a- quite a lot from him. And uh, I- I'll tell you the, the best Jules Kurtz story, which isn't really a Roadrunner story, <laughs> but, but it talks about Jules, the man that he was. So Jules was Bruce Springsteen's lawyer for his first manager, Mike Appel. Mike Appel ripped Bruce off. Bruce sued him and ultimately won, fired Mike Appel, but stayed friends with Jules because Jules was honest, he was a very, very honest guy. Never would, cheated anybody, you know, always tried to do the right thing. And Bruce recognized this and stayed friends with him. And Jules was always saying, you know, do you want to meet Bruce? Do you want to meet Bruce? And, you know, I was, you know, coming from New York and from Brooklyn and Springsteen sort of being the epitome of New Jersey. I didn't grow up a Springsteen fan. You know, I just like, yeah, I don't really care. It's Springsteen. It's not my thing. (laughs) And Jules finally said, look, you know, Bruce invited me to the show at the Meadowlands. I'd like you to come. So it was myself, Jules, Jules' son, and Stefan Coster, who worked at Roadrunner. And we were sitting right on the side of the stage, like third row, halfway through the show, Springsteen comes over to the side of the stage, waves at Jules. I'm like, wow, yeah, that's you know impressive. Because I've been hearing, you know, Jules telling me that, you know, he goes to Bruce's Christmas party every year and how close they are. And I I like half believe them. So Jules like, let's go backstage after the show. So we're backstage at the Meadowlands. There must be a hundred people back there all waiting. And 10 minutes go by, 20 minutes go by, 40 minutes go by. We're still all waiting and nobody's opened the door. And there's all these people and we're kind of in the back and I'm starting to like, almost get like embarrassed for Jules because like, there's no way this is going to happen. And and I'm trying to like figure out a way to save face. And I'm like, Jules, you know, I'm kind of tired. We can go, you know, we don't need to stay. He's like, no, no, you know, we're going to stay, Bruce. About 50 minutes into waiting, the door opens. Bruce sticks his head out. Everybody's screaming like, Bruce, Bruce, Bruce. Bruce is like, Jules and he calls us back to him and for 20 minutes bruce his wife patty jules jules son me and stefan alone in the dressing room and he couldn't have been nicer he was a wonderful wonderful guy and even though i wasn't a fan of his music i became a fan of the man mm. and he treated Jules so graciously. It, it was it was really a beautiful thing. And I was like, I always thank Jules, you know, for that experience. And, and that's the kind of guy Jules was, you know, he um he, he you know, he was a very he was so honest that Bruce realized that, okay, my manager <laughs> ripped me off, but this guy that my manager hired, he wasn't part of any of that. And even when Roadrunner had moved on to having they realized at one point they needed an in-house attorney and they'd used a few outside attorneys and they weren't really using Jules anymore. I went to case and said, I want Jules to still be blue grapes lawyer. And he was, you know, till, till the end when we sold blue grape uh, Jules did all our artist contracts. Yeah. Uh, And I, I, it was great to work with, Mm. you know, you'd have to watch it, you know, Sometimes you have a little bit too much wine. <laughs> you know? And, and he's about the old days, but I think we're all guilty of that.
2: Awesome. There's, there's so many, I'll, I'll, I'll lead him with this after, after I've just made this declaration. Does anyone else really need a piss? Yeah. Yeah?
0: Right. Should we just take, should we take half a minute? Piss break. Piss break. <laughs> Once yes. you get the, sort of the Nickelback piece of it, I, I think a lot of it, changed and a lot of you know they expanded the the, um number of people they had at the label especially you know in the radio department um and a lot of these people came in came in from a different culture yeah i mean i think that the reason why roadrunner was so successful early on you know my opinion is, is is a combination of two factors one was was the passion of the staff, yeah. and, and Monty Connor, you know, in particular. Oh. I mean, you can't underplay, you know, Monty's importance no. in all of this. I mean, Mon, you know, and and Monty is, you know, look, Monty is a funny. I've known Monty for so long. <laughs> I I moved Monty out of his parents' house in Staten Island to Manhattan. And there were several times, you know, I could tell you so many Monty stories. I, <laughs> every I time. To his flat
1: one night with you, probably, to watch a movie. You know what I mean? In some, like, like you know, just, like, some place in Manhattan. And it was, like, some building somewhere, you know what I mean? But it's like, yeah, that's where we're going now. And this is it, you know. But this is Monty's, you know. But, yeah, all those people are... Um, those early days, I think, is what it's all about. Let, let
2: me let me <laughs> articulate where, where... It's globally.
0: yeah, yes, globally, it was, it was Hank Hecker in Germany, oh. you know, it was Mark in the UK. I mean, John Sally, yeah, Sally came along a little bit later, but uh, but I mean, it was all of those people and their passion for the music, um, combined with. Case's level of professionalism. And that's what I think differentiated Roadrunner from the other metal labels of the day, like Century Media or early on Metal Blade. I think Metal Blade caught up. And I think, you know, Brian Slagle, who I'm friends with today and actually worked with them, um, he learned from that. But I think early on, you know, Case treated Roadrunner as if it was a major label. But it wasn't at that point but the passion of the staff um you mm. know people work really long hours they work weekends um they they were living it yeah and, and and that showed and then i think later on you know it became more like some of the major labels where that that passion isn't really there anymore it's just a job
1: that's my whole feeling about, I mean, you know, those early, you know, earlier days of, but you, you know, the staff, Erwin, Ronald, all that, they're so bought in, you know, yeah, yeah. and upstairs and, you know, Marcus mm-hmm. and everybody that worked in, and Gerrit uh, and, you know, whoever else I can remember. Wait, I've, I've spoken about them before, women, your room. Everybody was bought into the company. Yeah. You know, and I'm talking from the European side, you know, I mean, and I was an outsider. I, I came in, but you could see that, you know, I mean, they were so bought in to the company. So oh yeah, he brought that ethos, you know, he I'm, brought that and or made that, and everybody was like, I'm
2: all in, <laughs> you know. I'm going to ask the question, like, at the end. Let's ask the question at the end, which is like, why do you think Roadrunner is so important? Because we've, we've kind of done a round robin there, and I've got, I've got my understanding of why it's important, especially when you compare it to, say, a, a, a Metal Blade or a Century Media. I've got my own thoughts on that. Obviously, I didn't live it. But that's, yeah. that's, that's, let's jump into my third name. We've had our piss now. We're all fresh. <laughs> uh, but it's one you just all alluded to when we were talking about Fear Factor, which is Scott Koenig. So I'm quite interested in the relationship between the managers and the label because I think it really it really exposes the nuances of of how the, the label would treat certain bands and how what the bargaining positions were. And therefore we can kind of break down, we can pierce the veil and, and lift the veil on what it's like to be a band that is subject to a, a record label and vice versa. But Scott, I did reach out to quite early on but i didn't get anything back i was probably using like an, uh, an older email or something like that
0: oh that's a shame
2: he's no fucking joke and, and something which you've alluded to across this conversation is there's a lot of like music royalty we could even just say that the music industry itself is quite a small industry and there's no avoiding this but there's quite a lot of rock royalty that bleeds into road in some interesting ways either through kurt or through holly through what she ended up doing and think i mean steve ricardo signed poison that's no fucking joke. To in effect you know it's, it's kind of interesting about the weird incestuous nature of the personnel involved um but scott koenig to those who don't know who scott koenig is the easiest way to introduce it is to watch the fight for your right to party video because he's in that <laughs> but he also worked very closely with island Def jam i believe he introduced um slayer to i believe rick rubin and he was he also
0: yeah he's yeah. a uh, big Scott was a friend and Scott was, Scott was a beautiful guy. I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it, it was very sad, you know, is passing this year. Um, you know, Scott was, was actually almost too nice a guy for a, a lot of the label negotiations because right. okay. he, he would come into these negotiations on behalf of fear factory and not not going to say that that the label tried to railroad him because that that's not quite what I what I mean to say. But I mean, I think that um, if he would have been a louder, more aggressive manager, look, maybe it all would have ended up the same. Mm. But but I have like you know some recollections of uh, you know, look, Doug had a difficult job. You know, Doug's job was to be the bad cop and and on behalf of the company and to basically make sure that whatever deals they did were financially beneficial uh, for the label. And a lot of the managers resented him for that. You know, know, I I would put Scott in that category. You know, he, he and I had... A, a lot of conversations, um, you know, a, about that. Um, you know, and the, all he, you know, he was always fighting on behalf of his bands. And obviously, mm-hmm. in addition to Fear Factory, he had Biohazard. He had other bands at various points. Um, but you know, I always viewed the relationships with the managers, and I still do to this day, a, a, as key. I mean, that, 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 that's everything, you know, right. it's, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I still work with Todd Singerman and, you know, Todd, you know, manages the motorhead estate, but back then he, he was managing Cold Chamber when they first got signed to, to Roadrunner and, and then they fired him and they brought Sharon Osborne on as their manager. And I've always had a good relationship with Sharon. Hi, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> um but but Sharon can be really tough. And um Sharon did not like Doug at all because he came on, he tried to strong arm her, and you do not strong arm Sharon Osborne. And I remember her calling me up and she inherited the deal, and Cole Chamber had one of those 360 deals where there was no separate merchandising advance. And, you know, they were starting to do really, really well at that point. Mm -hmm. And she called me up, and I'll never forget her language. I don't know if you you have to beep any of it out.
2: I'm happy to beep (laughs) anything you need to beep.
0: But her exact words were, I want an advance. I want $100,000. And you tell that Dutch that you work for that (laughs) I want this. And I want it now. And unbeknownst to Sharon, and Sharon, if you watch this documentary, please don't be mad at me. But I had been tipped off that she was going to be making this call. So I so I had already talked to Case, and Case had already agreed to give them the advance. But I thought, you know, I could sort of use this as like a little leverage. So I said to Sharon, I don't know, Sharon, you know, it's a lot of money. Let me talk to him. Let me see what I can do. So I waited 72 hours. Now, mind you, he'd already approved the advance. (laughs) And I called her back and I said, Sharon, I don't know how I did it, but I got you the money. (laughs) And 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 she was very thankful. To me, she doesn't know the story. So if you watch the documentary, Sharon, forgive me, <laughs> but I, I but I thought you'd be proud of me for it. Um, but, but, you know, we had a great relationship after that. And, but I think that, you know, there was always sort of a, a bit of a tension relationship with some of the managers and, uh, on the label side, because, uh, you know, look, I think that's what Doug's job was was to be that bad cop.
2: Have you interviewed him? No, no, no. No, Doug Doug is, um, I mean, I'm in touch with Doug, but we've agreed that the most fun part of this project is me piecing it together bit by bit and coming and arriving at those conclusions. Because if I got Monty or or Doug onto the podcast, it would be like, tell me about Roadrunner for three hours and it'd all be done. It'd be fucking boring. We need to be able to piece these things bit by bit. Otherwise it's just, there's no journey. Did did,
0: did Monty not agree to do it?
2: I've agreed. I've agreed with Monty that he shouldn't do it. I've been proactively saying to Doug and Monty, let's stay away because I want to be able to, you guys should be the last two.
0: There were certain qualities, you know, that case had that were actually pretty admirable. Um, You know, in, in 2000, I had, I had to be hospitalized. I had some emergency surgery. And Case called me up when I was in the hospital and he said, I don't want you to worry about anything. You take as much time as you need to recover. You'll be at full salary. You don't have to go on disability. Which, you know, what I've learned since, you know, if I had been working for Live Nation when that happened, um, you know, I'd been screwed. Yeah. And in those areas, you know he was actually really good to his employees, you know, if you were part of, you know, his circle, you know, he, he did, you know, he did things like that.
1: Yeah, but I would, you know, I mean, um, my feeling on all, the, all those people we work with, where that you were, you were, you're fully involved, you know what I mean? It's like, and they yeah, will, yeah you know, it's like you can rely on them. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and that's the people that I want to work with. You know what I mean? So it's like you know,
0: he, he so, would ask you your opinions. He didn't always like your opinions, but he'd ask.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, no. yeah. But like you know, but you know, but it's like but I could rely on the people I was next to, surely. You know what I mean? And, and in that one, yeah.
2: he for you, you know what I mean? So Do you think he do you think yeah. he was a good judge of character? And that's why you've walked out of this years later saying this is special because we fucking everyone you were surrounded by. It wasn't a close knit family because of the shit you did. And no, it, it was because of the people you were with. You know what I mean? What is it? Is it because you pushed civil side up to platinum status or was it because the next year was actually all right? No, I
1: think, I think it was a good judge of character. You know what I mean? I think that's, that's, that's obviously why he's got where he's at, you know what mm. I mean? So
0: it's like, you know But I'll but I'll tell you something funny that you know I was told the story from the, the Dutch office. Now you yeah. have to understand Are we still off record? No, <laughs> we can <laughs> not So oh. you know, you have to understand the Dutch the office Dutch, the Dutch culture. Yeah, and, yeah. And, oh, sure. and, and, oh, so I have a great book that I think Ian actually gave me called The Undutchables. The Undutchables. And it was about an Englishman living in the Netherlands and his observations because the Dutch, you know, are a very different culture certainly to uh to the United Kingdom, to the United States. You know, they like to do everything by committee, they like um, everybody's opinion counts. Whether you're the floor sweeper or or you're the CEO, everybody gets to put an opinion, and you vote on it, and, and and come up with a consensus, which is very different from. I grew up in a more autocratic way of doing business, where like I'm the boss, it's my way or the highway, but. You know, case being Dutch, um, but spending a lot of time in America and England as well, sort of had sort of like a hybrid sense of this. But there were certain people in the Dutch office that um, had watched this documentary uh, that was on Dutch TV about to be a good boss and a good leader. You know, you, you need to have more interaction with your staff including like touching them on the shoulder telling them that they did a good job because case wasn't one of those people that was like a warm fuzzy boss that would tell you hey you've done a great job if you didn't say anything he would tell you when you fucked yeah. up yeah. but if you if he didn't say anything that meant that you did a good job so if you were the type of person that needed that kind of encouragement. Well then, he wasn't really the right boss for you. If you were somebody who was confident in your skills and your abilities, knew that you did good, well then you were great. So this TV show goes on, and I think it was Ronald uh, who worked with us buys this book for a Case that I guess they had talked about in the documentary um, about you know how to be a good boss, and in this book. It it talks about, you know, you should touch your employees like on the shoulder, like once a day, pat them on the back and tell them they're doing a good job. And Ronald, because he's Dutch, has no qualms about leaving this book for the CEO. Ronald's like a clerk at this point, leaving this book for the CEO of the company worldwide on his desk with a note like, you know, two K's from Ronald. I thought this would be good reading for you. (laughs) <laughs> Where in America, you'd be scared to, for your job to do that. You would never do that, you know. So he doesn't. Case to his credit, reads the book. Now we know that he read the book because the next week he went around tapping <laughs> everybody on the shoulder, being like, "You're doing a good job," <laughs> mm-hmm. and everybody was so freaked out in that office because they were. It was. It was so. Uh, Un, you know, it was such an uncomfortable feeling. <laughs> but I gave him credit; he read the book.
1: This is not alone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he read the book and, and he tried to initiate some type of change because he felt like, okay, you know, maybe I should be a warmer, more friendly boss. <laughs> but but you know, like I'm not sure so much. I think he was a decent I think he was a decent judge of character. Um he, in the sense that
1: he was totally at this yeah 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 absolutely yeah.
0: I. that he hired people who didn't need to be pat on the back. He hired a, certainly in, in the early days he hired a bunch of people um who who were confident enough in in, in their abilities to get the job done. But granted it got to a point where he wasn't really doing the hiring anymore at a lot of, you know, at various points. Mm-hmm. Other people were, were doing hiring for him. You know, Mark was doing all the hiring in the UK office. Doug was doing a lot of the hiring, you know, in the US and, you know, mm-hmm. Hank in Germany, Stefan, you know, in France, you know, it's yeah. John in Australia. So, you know, but I think that he... Put together like a, a core group, and you know, I hate to use the word. I'll put quotes around it, but executives who um could, you know, help enable, you know, the vision of the label. I don't think he ever. He certainly never stated to me, and maybe he did to Monty, other people. But there was never like a mission statement, like this is who we are. This is what, you know, the label was about. It
2: was always just understood. Yeah. That makes sense. Shall we move into the chronology again? Sure. Because we've gone off on one, but I like it. I do fucking like it. Um...